All right. Welcome back to the Missionary District Podcast. I am Deacon Amos. And I'm Father Rob. And this is Infant Baptism Part 2. So, last time we talked about infant baptism in history, and I think maybe we underemphasized that point a little bit, the importance of that point. Yeah. It was and it is the dominant view, but why is that important? I'm not sure we actually hit that question. Why should we care what the church through history has thought about this? What would you say to somebody asking that question? Yeah, we definitely undersold this point, and I think it was because we've probably been in multiple conversations where it holds almost no weight for the other person. Right. Um, we've had enough conversations through the years to know that uh, what the church does through history and what it believes and has believed has a big impact on our theology. But I understand it doesn't work that way for everyone else. And so when you're talking about the main points that you need to discuss something in order to help them come to the same conclusion, you go to the same sources that they often think about rather than try and force a new source down their throat that they're not actually very happy with. So when I'm working with people, I find it can just be an uphill battle to explain the historical, or we would say the Catholic argument on these things. It doesn't hold weight for them. So I'd simply say this, that there's a reason we we have sayings about the danger of disregarding our history. Uh, if you consider maybe the most famous saying, it is those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. When we get to theology in the church, we must take into consideration what the church has always practiced because we, at bare minimum, need to know why they practiced those things. Uh, we may not agree in the end, and we may not like their reasoning for it, but it's only reasonable to think that they probably had a reason behind their practices and their beliefs. And we should know why so that we are sure that we don't repeat the problems from the past, but also so that we don't disregard blessings that God actually wanted for us that the past held. So most importantly, though, I think that we can see scripturally that considering our history is the way that God asks us to act. He tells us to remember our past for a few different reasons. He tells us that remembering our past helps us not to fall into sin. Uh, it also helps us not to forget all that he's given us or what he's done for us by his own hands. It's a reminder that we didn't make it on our own, that we didn't somehow get to where we are without him. Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 20 is actually a really important passage for me, and I think it's an important example of this. God calls the people of God to remember what he's done in the past. He warns them because life will move on. They'll have homes, and they'll have food to eat, and everything will feel easier than it was when they were in the desert. And if they forget why they were in the desert and what God did to bring them into the desert in the first place, but then also out of the desert, they will move on as if God wasn't involved. And so to protect them, he asks them to look back so that they don't forget his grace, his mercy, and his goodness towards them, because it won't be new anymore. And uh, I think that we fall into that trap a lot. So for me, the reason what happened in history matters is because I believe God tells us it does. He tells us to look back. He tells us to look and see what he did in the past to know who he is. He tells us that it's easy for us to forget that the new thing is always going to feel like the best thing. And if we're not careful, life will just move on from him. 
And so I think that when we look back and we look at the Catholic or the historical uh, reasoning for beliefs, we need to take them into consideration because God tells us to look back and see so that we don't leave him behind somewhere along the way. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I find as well that it is it is an uphill battle with people to try to get them to understand the importance of of the historical arguments um, and even to take them seriously. Yeah. Um, I think in our culture, I don't know if it's just an elevation of self or if it's maybe tied to this notion of time as progress. Right. But we seem to intuitively think of ourselves as like the pinnacle of human reason. Yeah. And so when we think about what did people in the first few centuries of the church believe about something, yeah. if we disagree with them, we kind of just assume that they had no idea what they were doing, but I've got a pretty good grip on it. Yeah. And then when we actually look into it, as you and I have both found on on many occasions, it's like, oh, they had really good reasons. Yeah, and these actually, guys are really I'm the smart. One that's wrong here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're not idiots. Like, what? <laughs> it seems like every time when I find myself out of alignment with the historical argument for something, yeah, when I do the work, when I dig into it, I find out that I'm the one in error. Yeah, uh, and that I actually should be listening to my fathers in the faith. Yeah. And it really, it taps into something across the globe too. We, we act like we're really connected to the wider, um, to the whole earth. Right. Because we are in some ways. Technology allows that in, in ways that we've never had before, but especially theologically, and I would say especially in the Western world, when it comes to theology, we don't realize that we're still the small group on almost every front when we're not following with church history because most of the world has remained in yep. a lot of these things. And yep. uh, so it's helpful to see that it's often the historical argument is also kind of the dominant argument across the world as well, usually. Right. So. Yeah. No, that's great. So we also talked last time about infant baptism in Scripture. And in particular, we talked about the cultural context of the New Testament. We talked about the connection between circumcision and baptism. And then we also talked about what we called the oikos formula. And I know there will be people, you know, asking why didn't we talk about Acts 2 in that section or maybe mm -hmm. some other passages. The reality is we, we had to pick and choose. Our discussion here isn't meant to be exhaustive. If you want that, there are books on the topic that you can read. This is, this is sort of more of an overview and what we have found to be most persuasive. And I know some of those things will probably come up when we talk about the objections uh, mm -hmm. as well anyways. So. Yeah. so let's move on then and talk about infant baptism and the gospel. And this, for me, is the most compelling thing. Like everything else that we've talked about so far, I think helped me understand that infant baptism is valid, that it can't just be rejected out of hand, but it was seeing the gospel expressed in infant baptism that really made me fully embrace it. Yeah, this is, I think I said it in the last episode, this is what made me most excited about infant baptism. There's other pieces to the puzzle that kind of brought it together theologically, but this is where I went, oh, this is beautiful, and made me want to help people receive the beauty of it, not just not just that it's true and okay, right? right? But it's yeah, actually yeah. a beautiful thing. Yeah, this is the thing that, that made me excited about it. Exactly. 
the, the practice of infant baptism gives us a clear representation of the gospel message. And I would argue that it gives us a clearer view of the gospel than almost anything else that we do in the life of the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 Uh, is a verse that should be on the lips of any Protestant, and it says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And that really is the gospel message in a nutshell. The, The grace of God is a gift. God's grace is not earned by anything that we do, including the act of baptism itself. And so if you think about baptism as something that you are doing to earn God's favor, then I think you have failed to comprehend the gospel message. Yeah. Baptism is first an act of God's divine grace. In the waters of baptism, we die with Christ and we rise with Christ. We are born again to new life in perfect union with Jesus. And the practice of infant baptism is a visible representation, a dramatization of this central truth that we are all brought into God's family by an act of his divine grace and not by our own merit or initiative. When you look at a baby screaming as water is poured over them, one thing is abundantly clear to everybody in the room. They have done absolutely nothing to deserve this. And that is the beauty of the gospel. That is true of every single one of us. None of us has done anything to earn the grace of God. We all come into the kingdom of Jesus as newborn babies, having done nothing to deserve it or to earn our place in the family. Yeah, one of the things that I shared at one of our most recent infant baptisms here at our local parish in Lethbridge is that crying itself is actually a sign of life. If we really do believe that this this moment is being used by God, it's us being born into the kingdom by water and spirit, as Jesus tells us in John 3, then birth results in crying. It's actually a sign of life. It's a sign of health in the birthing process. If a baby is born and they don't cry, they are immediately checked out because it's odd. It's dangerous even. And In the delivery room, when a baby is born, there's this awesome mixture of chaos and beauty, and that's what's happening during an infant baptism. And so this crying, this screaming that can happen, not always, (laughs) but can happen, is actually meant to be a joyous occasion, a moment of chaos and beauty where they are being born into the kingdom. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Because I think that question comes up with families who are maybe a little bit concerned about I don't want I don't want this to seem like my yeah. baby isn't <laughs> joyfully receiving the grace of the gospel in That's baptism right. or yeah. you know what will people think if yeah. they're screaming. Yeah. Wow, isn't that beautiful? That's, <laughs> That's what right. we think. Yeah, because Look when at we're this new life coming into existence. When we're in the delivery room, nobody's like could you please make that baby stop crying? Yeah, this is a solemn moment. <laughs> yeah. A doctor often will pick a baby up and give them a little swat on the back or the butt to make sure there's not something caught in their throat and that they're, they've got airflow, that they're okay, and it causes crying in a delivery room. Like, you know, there's, the, yeah. there's just these things that happen. It's, it's not easy and not, not everything is just this grace-filled, quiet moment. In fact, that's not what birthing is. And it's a beautiful representation of that when 
you have this little baby in your arms, yeah. not knowing what's going on and freaking out a bit over what you're doing, <laughs> right? And yeah. and as you said, it is the gospel in action. Right. A, a holy moment doesn't necessarily have to be a quiet moment, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, That's it, right. it is a really beautiful thing. Yeah. Uh, now, I think many people who oppose infant baptism at least accept that it is valid, but not everybody does. And I think that that's maybe where things can get a little bit dangerous. I think to suggest that an infant's baptism is invalid ends up calling into question the validity of every baptism because it suggests that God's grace is insufficient and that something further is required of the recipient in order to make God's grace effectual. And that seems to me to be a distortion of the gospel. It puts, you know, the onus on us instead of on God. Absolutely. And when I think about my own baptism, I was baptized as a teenager, and I knew almost nothing about God compared to what I know now, right? My faith in God, my appreciation for the gospel have grown exponentially, as they should, and, mm-hmm. and they should continue to grow. Yeah. But when we deny the validity of infant baptism, I think what we do is we introduce qualifications for baptism that tend to be very ambiguous. Mm. So if I'm doubting the validity of an infant's baptism, then I also have to doubt the validity of my own. Yeah. I mean, in, in the context of eternity, how much more knowledge of God do I have than an infant? None. God is infinite. He is boundless. He is incomprehensible. We are all infants saved by the grace of God who initiates towards us in love. Infant baptism vividly enacts that central truth of the gospel. Yeah, that's such a beautiful picture. And I think to add to your point of what you're saying, I think the words of Jesus in Luke 18, so verses 15 through 17, are important because, well, there he says, now they were bringing even infants to him, which I'll point that out, even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So not only does does what you knew about God as a teenager make you it doesn't make you more ready for Jesus. In fact, in this passage, Jesus himself tells his disciples that it's likely to make you less able to receive him. That being older and having more consciousness and more choice doesn't actually guarantee you kingdom access in a way that a child can. So whether we read this passage about baptism officially or not, the context definitely lends itself to infants being those that are most prepared to enter the kingdom of God, right? which is a beautiful picture. And yeah. I just think when Jesus himself is saying it, we better take it really seriously. Right. So as we know, not everybody agrees when it comes to infant baptism. So it's helpful to talk about a few objections that come up often when we're right. talking about infant baptism. So I think maybe the first one, I don't. It, it's probably at least one of the most used, And it's around the day of Pentecost and what happened with baptism when the Holy Spirit came. It's about repentance. So on the day of Pentecost, the the gathered crowd looks to Peter and asks how they should respond to the message of the gospel. And Peter's response is, repent and be baptized. Does this mean that baptism must be accompanied 
by repentance. So if if we just take this one thing only, yeah. should we not refrain from baptizing children until they're old enough to repent? That's a great question. And like you said, I think this is probably the most common question yeah. that's raised. And I think it's a valid question that stems yeah. from a genuine desire to both safeguard the sacrament of baptism yeah. and to be true to the Holy Scriptures. And so there's a, there's a lot of agreement there already. Yeah. Um, however, as with every passage, we can't simply take these words out of their context. Peter was speaking to a crowd of people who were desiring to convert to the Christian faith. Yeah. And so his words are a plumb line for us in regards to missional growth, but he's not trying to address generational growth. He's not he's not even addressing the question of what to do with with your infants. Yeah, exactly. And in no way does infant baptism lessen the need for repentance based on this passage right. in the Christian life. Repentance is absolutely necessary. In, uh, in the Christian life and a necessary part of our ongoing sanctification in this life, which is why we as Anglicans see it as part of almost every service and prayer time in the Book of Common Prayer, for example. We believe repentance is necessary for faith, and you can see that in how we function in our services and how we call people to pray, that we do not believe repentance is unnecessary as part of our action as Christians. Right. So we're not really separating the concepts of repentance and baptism. No. Uh, we're just allowing for, I guess, some temporal separation between the two in, That's the, ca- right. in the case of infants. Yeah. Um, and if we keep reading this passage, it's often a passage that's used in support of infant baptism. Yeah. Because Peter continues, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And we just have no reason at all to assume that Peter has some unmentioned minimum age in his mind when he includes the children of the onlookers as being recipients of the promised Holy Spirit. Rather, it seems as though Peter means exactly what he's saying. Children of all ages have always been included in the covenantal promises of God, and nothing has changed. Just like the promise to Abraham was given to Isaac, the promises of God to you are given to your children, and they are born into this inheritance of faith. And nowhere in Scripture do we get the impression that we should withhold the covenant sign from our children. Yeah, really good. And you just you know, connected this to faith. And I I brought up faith's connection to repentance uh, a moment ago as well. What about the role of faith in baptism? There are numerous references in the New Testament that tie faith and baptism together, which is likely why one of the most common compelling objections against the practice of infant baptism is that the child is not able to exercise faith for themselves. They're not given a choice about becoming a Christian, but rather in some ways they're forced into it. Now we addressed that, this idea in some way about choice last episode, but do you have more thoughts about how we can answer this objection regarding faith and baptism? Yeah, this is, this is one of my favorite questions to get, hmm. um, because I think it, it ends up revealing some misunderstandings that we tend to have about faith. Right. So first of all, there's, there's a bit of confusion in our day between faith and intellectual comprehension. Mm, very good. Faith is more than knowledge. It's much more than knowledge. Yeah. 
Um, one of the analogies that I like to talk about in this context is the relationship between a newborn baby and their mother. It, it's difficult to quantify, but we know, even scientifically, that a child bonds to its mother through the course of the pregnancy and, it, and in its first moments outside the womb. A child actually knows the voice of its parents before it's even born. And if you've had children, you know that, that health staff will all tell you how important skin-to-skin -skin contact is for a newborn baby. Physical touch is somehow developmentally important and on more than just a biological level, there's a real relationship that's being formed there. Yeah. A newborn is placing its trust in its mother and it is responding to her affections. Hmm. And I really don't think that it's far-fetched to say that the same could be true of the relationship between a child and its heavenly father as it is reborn in the waters of baptism. That's good. A child can know their heavenly father before they're able to articulate it, and they can respond at a deep level to the grace and love that they are receiving from him. And I think faith is an appropriate word to describe that. And so when people say that babies can't have faith, I just straight up disagree with that. <laughs> and one of the passages that we could look to here would be John the Baptist leaping in the womb in the presence of Mary when she is pregnant with the Lord. Certainly a response like that to the presence of Christ is indicative of some measure of faith. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, I'm not sure I've actually ever considered this objection in that way. I think it's a really helpful and just very clearly biblical understanding of what faith is. And that's a beautiful picture of the child and mother. And I don't think I've ever really considered it in that measure. And I think that's very helpful. Yeah, that's great. Um, I also think that this objection places undue, and I would even say unbiblical emphasis on the modern value of autonomous choice. Yeah. Like in the same way that we conflate faith and intellectual comprehension, we kind of conflate faith and autonomy or choice. Yeah. And to return once again to the interactions between God and the nation of Israel, it's clear that God chose the entire nation. Mm -hmm. And that although Abraham himself gave his consent, the generations of Israelites entered into the covenant by virtue of their birth. Right? A Jewish parent didn't have to wonder whether or not their child would choose to become an Israelite. In fact, the very notion is ridiculous. Yeah. And the same is actually true of the church. A Christian parent does not have to wonder or worry about the eternal state of their children. Hmm. Their children, by default, are given an inheritance of faith as they are born into a family that is already in covenant with God. Yeah. Their relationship with God is a gift. And I think that the actions of people who oppose infant baptism actually speak louder than words here because people who don't baptize their babies usually still do something and they call it infant dedication, right? They don't actually treat their children like pagans. Yeah. They treat them as though they are members of the covenant community. They just withhold the covenant sign. And frankly, and this is going to be maybe a little bit controversial, but <laughs> the practice of infant dedication does not have a lot of biblical support. Yeah. Like you can turn to lots of verses that talk about God blessing people. And I certainly don't think that 
infant dedication is harmful. God does love to bless people, and I have no doubt at all that he blesses our children when we ask him to. But in terms of like what we see in a lot of churches today, which is like a universal practice of infant dedication, there's just nothing like that in the Bible. Yeah. People usually look to Samuel, who was dedicated by Hannah, but Samuel actually lived in the temple, and his experience wasn't normative. <laughs> this was a very unusual thing that Hannah felt led to do. It wasn't universal. Yeah, or, or the other passage I've heard people use is the one that I spoke about earlier, where Jesus says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. But using that to prove infant dedication kind of misses the last part of the verse, where Jesus says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Right. Right? Like it's a, it's missing the kind of key piece to what Jesus is trying to say. Yeah. And, and again, I agree that Jesus loves blessing people. Yeah. That's not the issue. Yeah. But this, again, wasn't a universal practice. And there's no evidence that the early church engaged in a practice like that for every child. Yeah. You, you don't really see infant dedication becoming popular until people started rejecting infant baptism. Yeah. It's a replacement. Yeah. And again, I'm not against infant dedications. I'm just saying if you're against infant baptism because it's not explicitly in the scriptures, then I think you should probably ask a few questions about what infant dedication really is and where your beliefs about that are coming from. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you just pulled out. Dedication is a replacement. We can see that, again, you'd have to look historically, <laughs> you'd have to look back to the practices, but it is very clear. It's a replacement of infant baptism. And as you said, if you're, if, if you're replacing a practice because you believe it's not biblical, yeah. why replace it with an even more unbiblical practice? It just doesn't add up in the end. And I think that it reveals something bigger going on, right. that maybe there's a misunderstanding along the way or whatever else it might be. And so I, I'm hoping even these episodes we have can help shed some light on some of those misconceptions about what infant baptism really is, yeah. but also maybe shed some light on uh, where the practices they've grown up with really are too. Yeah. Maybe just to push back on that point a little bit. Sure. I'm not sure I would say that that infant dedication is unbiblical. No. Like it's not opposed to the scriptures. No. As I said, God loves blessing people. And that's if, right. If you bring your child to the altar and say, God, will you bless my child? Yeah. hundred percent. He's going to yes. bless that child. So I'm not sure I'd say it's unbiblical, but no. I mean, it's unbiblical in the same way, I guess, that infant baptism is in that there's nothing explicitly about something like that in the scriptures. Yeah. And that's what that that's really what the statement means to me. Why I say it that way is when I say even more unbiblical than yeah. what infant baptism is, is that I think that as you can see through the last two episodes, when you make an argument for infant baptism, you realize that it's really present there, even yeah. though it's not explicitly said. That's right. So it is fair for some to say, well, it's unbiblical. And you can say, sort of. It is sort of unbiblical in the in the sense that it's not explicit. Right. But it is there in other ways. It's in, there implicitly and quite clearly implicitly as you the more you get into it. Yeah. Um, the same isn't true of infant dedication. But the, the same isn't true of infant dedication. It is true of all blessing, though. Sure. That is more explicit even. And if that's right? all you mean from an, by an infant dedication is that you're asking God to bless your child. Right then maybe, I guess you could sure. argue for something like that. But. And and I'd have to read, but so maybe the origins of infant dedication came from that, that it was just a God loves to bless 
And so let's bring our children to be blessed because a baby was born. Yeah. My guess is that's not its origins. I have not read it historically, but I know that the people that I, the people that I know and love that practice infant dedication and the churches I've been a part of that practice it would not teach it that way. They would teach it very similar to infant baptism. Yes. Yeah. Well, and my guess is when you pull infant baptism out, then the parents are going, okay, well, what do we do with our children? So you need an answer pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So I guess this brings us to another objection, which is whether baptism could be used as a get-out-of-hell-free card. What do, you, what do you think about that conception that some people think we're saying when right. we start to teach about infant baptism? Yeah, I think that's a common misconception, and, and I would say just absolutely not. Yeah. Baptism is not guaranteed ticket to heaven or whatever you want to say. Yeah. And we talked about this on this podcast before, so I think I'll just refer people to the episode that we did on baptism and salvation. But baptism is not akin to a magical incantation or some superstitious rite, and treating it as such is an abuse of the sacramental gift that God has given to his people. I think, honestly, this is an area where we have a lot of common ground. Yeah. People will often talk about all the people they know who were baptized as infants, but don't seem to have any meaningful relationship with God. And I fully agree that that is common and that it is tragic. This is a source of grief for the body of Christ, and it can even hinder our mission to the world because it almost seems to stand as a testimony against Christ and his church. So we agree on that, yeah. but we disagree on what our response should be. I don't think that our response to that— should be a rejection of infant baptism. Yeah. I think it should cause us to take discipleship more seriously. Baptism is the first step in the life of a Christian disciple. It does not stand in isolation from the rest of the Christian journey. It must be accompanied by a life of discipleship within the context of the believing community. And I mean, I've also come across many people who were baptized as infants and left the faith and then returned later in life. And I always have to wonder if that's not evidence of a deposit of grace that is given in baptism that ends up drawing people back. Yeah, I like that you bring that point up because it's been a question for me in my own life, that thought. Because I was baptized as an infant and I actually didn't know it. For most of my life, that had never been told to me. I was baptized as an infant and no one told me. Right. <laughs> and um, it was just some, something we never talked about. And so my whole life, I felt drawn to Jesus, even when I was willfully choosing against him. I remember feeling conviction for my sin at a very young age, uh, at moments where, you know, I would curse at five and go, oh no. <laughs> and, and I just had these like deep rooted things in me that I wanted Deep down inside, I wanted to follow the way of Christ. What was going on in Wawota that you felt like you had to curse at five years old? I think it was a video game issue more more than anything. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I wanted so badly to choose against him, to be honest, especially in my early and mid-teenage years. And through those years, I had this overwhelming desire and these thoughts that, wouldn't it be nice to live like everyone else? Wouldn't it be nice to leave faith behind to just be able to choose whatever you want and do whatever you want and not have to feel any sort of negative conviction over it or feel bad about it. But deep down inside, I knew it wouldn't give me what I was looking for. 
I, I was continually drawn to Jesus, no matter how enticing everything else in the world became. Later, when I found out that I was baptized as, a, as an infant, I actually felt this deep sense of peace from God that he had me all along. I, I remember the moment I was told I actually physically felt peace overwhelm me, that that makes sense of my entire life. Right. That that one piece was what I was missing. I, I just couldn't figure out why. Why did I always feel this need to follow him even when I didn't actually want to follow him? Now, that does not mean that I didn't choose against him. I did willfully choose against him for a time. And it, it doesn't mean that I didn't need discipleship. And I did. And thankfully, with my mom and with the Christian community around me, they did a good job of that. They led me to Jesus. And so when I wanted to choose against him, I had continual discipleship in my life. But it that deposit of grace, as you said, mm. I believe it was there for me in that moment because I felt it. Right. I experienced it. And so I had no grid theologically for what that could be yeah. until I found that out and then went, well, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense of so many things and and couldn't figure it out. So you bringing that point up really hits home personally for me. Right. Yeah. So maybe that brings us to the, the fourth point, the fourth objection. And after everything we've said, how would you respond to someone asking how we can all just get along with all of this? Because, you know, there's a few things we've said that some people could take offense to. Yep. Um, there's things that are said about infant baptism that we could take offense to, sure. right? Yep. Um, but if we all hold different beliefs in the end on this topic, on infant baptism itself, can there be unity? I, I guess the objection I'm, I'm trying to get to is, is can we walk in unity with people that believe differently than us? Or even further, is practicing infant baptism necessary for walking in unity? Yeah. That's a good question. And I realize that this is a very emotional topic for some people. Yeah. And I also know that changing your mind on something like this generally takes a lot of time. And yeah. I think because of that, I never want to be too dogmatic about it. I think there is room for people to wrestle with it. There's yeah. room to engage with this topic and to yeah. really think through it. And Sometimes you need time and space in order to do that. Yeah, and I think maybe it's helpful for those that are listening that I guess there's different ways we could talk about unity. Yeah, that's right? true too. Yeah. And so, you know, in the uh, Roman Catholic Church or we as Anglicans or even Orthodox churches have something called full communion. And that means we are fully together in every way, governmentally even, that we're kind of under the same oversight. And so our practices and beliefs would be basically the same on every major point. But there's also other types of unity that could be like a missional unity, right? right? Where we can go out into the world and try to reach people or care for the poor or do different things in the world for the sake of God's glory and reaching people and bringing them into life with Christ. But we disagree on a lot of things. And if we sat down at a table and tried to hash those out, it may not go super well, right? right? Yeah, it may yeah. be a very difficult conversation, but we could still have missional unity. Right. But then there's also a middle road of unity, which is where we could recognize one another's faith validly, and we could be willing to work together for the expansion of the kingdom. We could also be willing to worship together, and that would probably be an important part of that. Right. But we wouldn't be united governmentally necessarily. And I think in those points, if, if we're talking about that middle way, that type where we could 
worship, recognize each other's beliefs. That one's a little bit more difficult, right? Yeah. So the different levels of unity are, you kind of have to understand them in order to answer the question, I think, as well. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think I'd have to say that accepting the validity of infant baptism is necessary to walk in unity, at least in that middle sort right. of road that you're talking about. Yeah. Because if you believe that infant baptism is not valid, yeah. then you believe that most Christians around the world today and through history have not been validly baptized, yeah. which is tantamount to saying that they're not even Christians at all. Yeah. And so I'm just not sure what level of unity would even be possible there. Yeah. Um, and even at that missional level that you mentioned, I mean, I would have no problem, say, partnering with the local Baptist congregation for the sake of mission. Yeah. But I'm not sure it works as well the other way. Yeah. You know, so from their perspective, a lot probably depends on what kind of mission it is. Right. But I would also say that actually practicing infant baptism or not, I don't think that that has to be an obstacle to unity. Yeah. While I obviously believe very strongly that the scriptures do support infant baptism, I can acknowledge that it is not explicitly commanded in the scriptures. And so there is at least some room for disagreement there and room, I guess, to wrestle with the issue that doesn't necessarily imply disunity. Right. Um, I think more important is that we are raising our children in the context of the church community. We are discipling them in the ways of the Lord, and we are baptizing them, yeah. whether as infants or as eight-year-olds or 10-year-olds or 12-year-olds or whatever your church has decided is the, the age that Scripture agrees with, you are baptizing them. Yeah. They are participating in that sacramental rite of initiation into the Christian faith. Yeah. And so as long as we're all acknowledging the validity of infant baptism, we can actually find a lot of agreement. Yeah. And I'm happy to celebrate with someone when they dedicate their child to the Lord. And I hope that they would also be happy to celebrate with people who baptize their children. Yeah. It's a big deal. I don't want to minimize that. It, it is important, but I don't think it's something that should sever our union with one another. Yeah, and I've really loved seeing that in our own local parish, is that we've seen people not grow up with a historic understanding of the faith and not, you know, they didn't grow up Anglicans, as most of us didn't uh, in our church. And so they've struggled with some of these pieces along the way, but to see them not struggle with them in a way that causes disunity within the body, but wrestle with them, as you said. And I think that that's a good word because it's different than struggle and it's different than conflict. Right. To wrestle with something means that there can be validity to the other side, but you're trying to come to an understanding of it. And I feel like we've seen that a lot in our church and I've been very thankful for how our people have walked that out. Yeah, yeah, that's been nice to see. Yeah. Anything else that you wanted to add in there? I don't think so. I think that that hit it really well. And I don't, personally, I don't know of any other major objections along the way. Those seem to be the things that have come up in my conversations. And I think... I think sometimes maybe they're phrased a bit differently for people. Yeah. But usually they come down to kind of those as root pieces along the way. Um, So I'm really glad. And I I wouldn't mind hearing if there's someone listening and go, well, actually, these are none of my objections. And I have something completely different. I'd love to hear what that is because uh, off the top of my head, when I think about the conversations I've had, it really has come from these areas. 
And I think that when you believe in something as deeply as we do, and when you've come into it and seen the grace of it, right, this whole front end of this episode, you see the beauty and the grace, you can be caught up in something, right? And you can miss pieces along the way. And I know I do. And so because of that, I would love to hear from people what areas they think may not have been addressed yeah, uh, or even addressed well enough, right? right? If there were certain texts or scriptures or we pushed too hard on something, um, I'd love to hear back from people. You know, the, the millions of listeners out there, no, whoever, whoever it is that's listening, I really feel like it would be good to hear and I'd love to continue conversations with anyone that is wondering or has more questions that we didn't get to. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah, you can send us an email anytime, missionarydistrict at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to maybe talking through some other topics with you in the future, Rob. Can't wait. And uh, maybe even hitting this one again if we get a bunch of letters saying where we went wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love it. That'd, That'd be great. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time.